So you're in a relationship with, you're a young person, you're right. You're in a relationship. You're probably sleeping with that person. You're going to Thanksgiving dinner with them. You're seeing them every Friday, Saturday night. You're probably spending 20 hours a week with them. They own every aspect of relationship. This is all of us, right? We own every aspect of relationship except the language. We're petrified of our own thoughts, even with the people we're most intimate with in the world. Hello, I am Joel Ingram, and this is Crisis to Crushing It podcast. Let's dive into this week's talk, and I'll help to increase perspective, expand perception, and allow you to change your reality. Enjoy the show. And so this was born out of, I was the, I was the managing editor of New York City's premier environmental consulting firm for 16 years. And uh, we did the World Trade Center, we did Moynihan Station, we did every probably major project or most of the major projects the last generation in New York City. Um, And what we found was that even when people came from Harvard or Brown or some other, uh, you know, Ivy League, you know, really excellent schools, they did not come in, I wouldn't say they didn't come in ready to write for business, they didn't come in ready to think for business and it affected their writing. And so my job sort of stopped being the editor and started being the trainer, the person to speak to all the new employees and the departments and everyone else about how are we going to structure these things so that we don't blow all of our budgets and all of our time and all of our, uh, all of our effort, uh, and it was it was a number one a, a huge financial concern for uh, the company, but it was also just a massive waste of time and effort. And people were blowing weekends and things trying to fix documents, and this was a, this was a problem, obviously culturally. So uh, that was my job for a few years. And every time I spoke to somebody outside of that company, said this is what I've started to do, they say, Yeah, we need that too. Absolutely, we need. Uh, and then it branched into, and can you talk about communication? Yeah, we need that too, right? And so, right? And so, and so yeah. all of a sudden, it, right? Um, and so, so all of a sudden, it, it branches into all these different places. And about a month ago, I left that firm, although they're now a client. Thank you, thank you, firm, uh, for that. They're now they're now a, a great client, so we still have a relationship. But uh, but I've left that firm and gone full into running this business full time. And there's essentially two buckets and talk about sort of life happening on an olive branch. This, the second bucket happened randomly too. And that was uh, someone I did not know. Uh, and I thought, I think your listeners might really sort of appreciate this, particularly the entrepreneurs. Um, that was somebody I did not know who worked at Morgan Stanley. And he said, can we, can we go have a cup of coffee? And I said, okay, fine. Uh, and, and he and he, we went for a cup of coffee, and he said, uh, "Do you do marketing?" And I said, "Well, what do you <laughs> like? What do you mean?" And he, and he says, and he sort of said, "Well, I don't actually care the answer to that question." He said, "Let me tell you what I'm thinking. Uh, I'm a wealth manager at Morgan Stanley. I, right, my client is an educated, uh, thoughtful person, and at." this company that he works at there are marketing people but they're all people who understand facebook ads and boomerang getting the getting the logos out there and all that kind of stuff but are they people who can help him generate 
thought-producing content for a thoughtful audience that has, say, millions of dollars to invest. And he said, not, I mean, honestly, not often. And he said, I, I, I want and need my audience to think of me the way I think of you, right? I know that you are credible in your space because of how you have marketed yourself. So I don't actually care whether you call that you have a background in marketing or not marketing. I want my marketing to look like that. I want my marketing to be that credible and thoughtful so that when people that potentially want to work with me come across it, they say, I am credible and thoughtful in my space. And then they want to invest money with me. And he says, I've, I've looked all at his year. I've just decided you're the guy. This was the first time that I've met him, right? This is the first time I met him. So then I would go to other places and I said, you know, somebody just had this conversation with me. Does this sound like something that would be interesting to you? And to a person, they were all like, yeah, we, <laughs> we need that too. That makes, that makes sense. Um, and I find that interesting. I'll just sort of leave it here because I think in our social media world, I'm learning something about this experience that may be of use to you and your and your people who are also entrepreneurs in, in your space. Um, I'm learning that social media scales because of the numbers of people obviously involved in it, right? So there's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of views on everything. But but what is it that social media is scaling? Like so if you are a thoughtful person, social media is scaling your thoughtfulness. But if you are using a social media, essentially just put your name out there and be self-promoting, then social media is scaling your self-promoting stuff, right? And it, and it comes off like self-promoting, not helpful or being credible inside of the space. Um, and so what I started to realize was that people were reacting to the credibility and thoughtfulness of the marketing that I was doing and that created a lot of essentially calls for me. And so it was, there's this interesting dichotomy, but I think a lot of your people are probably going through similar things where it's like, can you get a lot of views on something? Yes. But are those views going to get you calls and conversions and connections? Right. And I would argue that the more thoughtful, and and face facing more let less on here's my name and here's my face um here's the cliche and more more, more focusing more on thoughtful and credible and credible uh thoughtful action um that's going to establish a relationship which is going to generate the call much more quickly and then you don't need a hundred thousand call followers to get one call you just need a hundred followers to get one call because the connection is so much stronger. Uh, and, I, and I think that has been missed, like in our culture, in our social media culture, it's been missed by a lot of people who sort of talk about marketing in that space. Um, and, and whenever I start to have these conversations, now I'm having this conversation about marketing more often, that has come up a lot. Um, there's no sales call, right? When, if you are credible in your space, when somebody calls you, they're already closed because they already know what you do and they already know that you're good at it. So, so you don't have to close anybody on the call. It's just, it's just done, right? Mm. I've, I've looked at your stuff and I know you're, you're good at this. So can you do this? I know that you're done. Um, that's been a really interesting part of the business. That was a long answer to your question. I apologize. Uh, but those are the two buckets. One was, one was sort of corporate 
one is sort of corporate training and I continue to do that. And this, this other thing has jumped off of that kind of as, as an extension of some corporate training that I had done and has sort of moved into marketing and thought leadership. That's, that's awesome. I mean, that, that's just come about through following your interests. In essence, um, in essence. So, uh, I was a, and depending on how far back we want to go, uh, <laughs> when I first moved to New York, I wanted to be an actor. That was 25 years ago. Uh, and that lasted about uh, eight years. And then uh, that morphed into being a writer, which lasted longer. Um, and about four years ago, I tried to sell my first novel and it didn't go very well at all. Uh, the book, I had a good agent. I had, you know, all, all so, so I met a lot of the bars they had to meet in order to get to the other side. Um, but we couldn't, we couldn't sell it. Um, and that has turned into be a blessing in disguise. Be, and so I'll, I'll tell you just for, for those people who may be in the book industry, um, the book industry uh, is very reactive, not proactive. So they don't really create markets. They react to their market. Uh, so if you wanted to say, write crime fiction, you, you have a good avenue in a book. If you want to write uh, sex books or romance, there's, 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 a, there's a market for that. Um, but if you're writing literary fiction, there's not much of a market for that. And so, and so I, was in that, I was in that space, that sort of literary fiction space. Um, and when the book didn't sell, all of the comments on the book were very positive. It just didn't sell. And so it was, please send me his second book, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Please send me the next one. And so my agent was immediately like, can you, can you write another book? So I had a conversation with my agent, which was a heart to heart and said, look, I think I can spend another five years writing another book. Uh, I think that book could be pretty good. Uh, I already know what it is. And I have started writing it. Um, or I could start running this business, which I think is helping a lot of people. Uh, and when I look at friends of mine who are book authors, even in their 60s or 70s, uh, they all live in the East Village for the most part uh, in one-bedroom apartments that they have trouble keeping up the rent for. And that's even if they were a New York Times bestseller. So, Wait. right. So can you look me in the face now, we're having drinks to my agent, can you look me in the face and say that you really think it's the best thing for me to not build this business at this time in my life um, and help a lot of businesses who are struggling with a lot of things that I know the answers to, but nobody's really presented those answers inside business um, before. Um, or I should go write another book. And if I'm lucky, I'm going to end up in an East Village apartment trying to pay the rent when I'm 65 years old. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and she says, look, I'm your book agent. Like, what am I, I mean, what do you think I'm going to say to you? But you're not thinking about this incorrectly. Like you're, you're noticing a very real thing. Uh, so, so all of that work, those, all of that time editing and writing and thinking through how to make sentences clear and how and where do sentences come from and why is this more clear than that? All of that, all of those years have ended up in this business. 
Uh, and so it was, it was this training program that I didn't even know that I was in. Uh, but translating it to teaching uh, college, which I also do, and to business uh, has been, it, it all translates very, very easily, right? Writing is just writing is just writing. There's really just a question of detail. Uh, that, right, uh, detail and tone, we can call it that way, detail and tone uh, are going to be the drivers there. Uh, translating that to business, I think, was an opportunity that not a lot of people had seen or taken. Uh, so I took that opportunity. The response has been amazing. I've been overwhelmed by how blessed and lucky I am to have the clients that I have and, and that. Um, but I think it's all related. I think, I think it all sort of jumped. That timeline had to happen like that timeline in order to make this happen right now. Yeah. You just made a couple of things fall into place for me with regards to the way that you were describing uh, social media. Um, I've been in a couple of different masterminds and, and, and they've all talked about adding value. And I was like, you know, yeah, add value, add value. But I've never really considered it um, uh, as being thoughtful with your communication. And that, that, that really shifts, <laughs> really shifts it for me. Yeah. So, you know, a, a I mean, imagine how many people are out there right now that have, you know, heard the message of you've got to add value, you know, add the value and the money will come and everything else. But they may be missing the piece of the jigsaw and then to hear the, the part where it says, you know, it's about being, it's, it's being thoughtful and having the right intent with your communication. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, the, the, the jigsaw starts to drop and everything else starts to fit. I think that's a fantastic way to phrase it. And, and, and that's just clarified a lot, a lot for me. So thank you for that, Brian. <laughs> I'm going to take that one. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, I appreciate that. It, it, I think people are very good at this day and age of understanding intent. And uh, so, one, so my, my, my marketing clients uh, come from a couple of different places. One place is, I know I have to be thoughtful, but I'm scared to death. Yeah. That happens. Because if you, if you really think about, um, I know this gets a little bit deep here, but you're, you're Joel, so you got this. But, um, <laughs> and, you're, and you're Joel's listeners, so, so I'm sure they're all the same. Um, if you really think about when you produce any language at all, or really any thought, Right, really, really, any belief system, any behavior, if we really want to go that far with it, you're making a series of assumptions that, and then, and then every piece of language or any piece of, of behavior is an argument for that, how you behave. Right? And so, so right now, you are doing the most meaningful thing you could be doing in your life right now, according to your belief systems and all the assumptions that you're making about your life or else you wouldn't be doing it right because you'd be doing something yeah. else right <laughs> right yeah, like yeah, if, yeah. if you thought at this moment you should be with your kids you would be right yeah. but your kids have to sleep so they're asleep and you're here right but so 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 we do this right we do this the problem is we do it so instinctually right when it comes to our language it we do it so instinctually when it comes to our language that we that we forget that we're actually in the middle of that process until somebody says, great, write down why we did that. 
And this is anything, Joel. Like this is, write down why we did that. Um, meaning why did we study the site that way? Like why did we put four borings in those particular places and people get scared to death, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> it's like, yeah. because, because, now, because now people are gonna judge my assumptions of how I think. And that is petrifying to people, right? And so, so that's marketing client number one. Marketing client number one is petrified of the minute I put this down, somebody's gonna say, you're wrong, I disagree with you. And they will. Right, people are going to say you're wrong, and I disagree with you. So, how do we write this in a way so that so that we know what they're going to say, and we, and we write it in a way where 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 we're really the most thoughtful person in the room, right? So, so that's marketing client number one. Marketing client number two is somebody who's been putting a lot of social media out, right? This is somebody who's posting every day or three or four times a week, and they're not getting any traction, and and this person almost doesn't even want to hire me. Because they say, well, I do what you would teach me to do. And then I look at their content, right? And that content is 75% their logo, 75% their introduction, and then a, like a cliche statement um, that takes five seconds. Um, and they say, how come I'm not getting any traction? And it's like, because, it, because you're presenting yourself in this way where you're not actually trying to help people. It's really clear you're being try, trying to be self-promoting and someone told you to add value. So you're adding, you're adding this much value and you've got this much, uh, and you've got this much self-promotion in there. You got this much value in there. People see right through that and they say, why would I call you? Right? Why, why, would I, why would I want a relationship with somebody like you? But if you legitimately help people, like legitimately help people, with with your thoughtful reactions to stuff by the way if you're a coach a consultant an executive that's what they hire anyway they're hiring you <laughs> they're hiring you for you for how you assess information so are you going to be uh re respected and loved by everybody who comes across that post no of course not but but are you going to be respected and loved by the people who are going to hire you because they think and believe similarly to the way you, yes, now you're a magnet because nobody else is doing it. Everybody else is saying, here's my logo here. I'm really fancy here, 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 look, I've got music in my video and you're just giving out content and say, well, I would approach this wealth management problem this way, or I would approach this relationship problem this way, or and so are people going to disagree? Yes. But are the people who are going to agree with you going to be attracted to that and to, this, and to the sort of authentic genuineness and thoughtfulness of that? Yes. And the phone starts to ring. Uh, that's client number two, right? So um, it's to, to your social media, those, those seem to be the two extremes that sort of end up. Um, I don't think we're particularly good at this conversation yet in social media. Uh, I think this is probably the next, the next step of the conversation in social media. Like you, you, could, you could make a lot of money being thoughtless until now but now you can't really make money being thoughtless because there's so many thoughtless people out there so yeah how do you separate yourself you got to be thoughtful yeah it's it's yeah yeah i mean you know you know how i feel about communication brian we had a little sort of preamble before the show started and uh I think I read in one of your posts earlier on, you said something along the lines of, you know, how it's, it's our most, I think I even wrote it down, bear with me, I did. Yeah. Uh, this, this, this is one that I loved. Templated language is a shortcut for thinking. 
which despite our confident efforts to undermine, remains the human's greatest asset. asset. Could you go into a little bit about templated language? Because the bit I'd like to dig into <laughs> is the fact it's a shortcut for thinking. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's a couple of different there's a couple of different answers to that. There's the corporate answer, right? So the corporate answer is um, we did this project. So we we did a site study, right? We're say an engineering company or something. We did a site study that was very similar to the site study we did today. So you could create from a blank piece of paper a new structure for structuring information today, or you could grab the one that we did last year that was similar and, and grab that as a templated language and then move it over. Is that a bad practice? Not yet, right? Not yet. But we don't really ever have the conversation about um, about what is useful to carry over, right? And so, and so that piece of paper, let's say it has four headings on it. And let's say underneath the first heading, it's got three paragraphs. So immediately the person who is trying not to do too much thinking is gonna say, okay, so I have to fit my thinking on this site today into that heading in those three paragraphs, yeah. right? Yeah. But is that the most thought? So it, but if you, if that person were just to do nothing else before they brought the language over, right? Nothing else except how would you structure the end of this? Right? So, so if the takeaway is you have to do a phase two study uh, because we think there's contamination, right? If, so if that's the end structure, what are the what are the critical thinking steps that your client is going to go through in order in order to uh, agree with your assessment at the end without looking at that other document what are those steps for you how would you write that down mm -hmm. and, and and you write down simply the headings of those things and then so you have that this is what this is how i would build the argument today and then bring over that other language and say are those do those headings work or do those headings not work today are they close are they not close today like because you might be approaching this problem very differently than the person who wrote that document a year ago but because it already exists you're you're going to start grabbing somebody else's thinking and say i'll just squeeze my thinking in there and what's happening not all of your thinking is going in there not all of your expertise is going in there um, and that's creating so it's like on one side is it, is it shortening the process yes is it also uh, injuring the critical thinking and what you can be bringing to that project. Yes, unfortunately. So that's, that's the one side of it. Okay. On the, on sort of the, the marketing templated side of it, um, we get, we, we, I'm just, I'll answer, I'll, I'll ask you a piece of marketing, Joel, why, why does it exist? Like, what is the, what is the purpose of a piece of marketing? As, as I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but, but but it's a question we don't ask often enough, uh, and and that and that and that tends to make us do difficult things. But but if you were to if you were to come up with an answer, albeit all too quickly and unfairly, uh, what would you come up with as an answer for that question? For for me, marketing is is and this is the way I think about all marketing in my head. Yeah, is they're trying to get me an emotional state to buy something. <laughs> right. That's that's the way. That's what I'm very aware when people market to me. Right. What, what emotional state are they trying to get me in 
so they, they can get me to buy or agree with. Right. Okay. So I would call that copywriting, which okay. is, which is, I think another word for copywriting is manipulation. Um, and so, <laughs> and so um, this isn't going anywhere, right? Like this is going to live between us. We're not going to promote it. We're not going to sell it. Okay, so, so the other word for copywriting is manipulation. Um, but, but let's think about that for a second, right? Because, because what is the, when you purchase something, right? When you purchase uh, a product, why are you purchasing? Like what's the, what's, wh why would, need. why would you give anybody your money? To, to fill a need. To fill, okay, exactly. So, so what, the, what the copywriters are really good at is establishing that you need it, right? They, so so they're, they're really good at, uh, Joel, don't you want to lose five pounds? Like, isn't it, isn't it crazy that you are five pounds overweight and don't you feel like uh, next to the rock? Don't you feel terrible, right? Like they put you in this emotional space and you go, oh, I feel awful about my extra five pounds, right? And, and, you, and they say, for only $299, you can take my course for, I got to spend $299, I got to lose five pounds, right? Like they put you into that space, but what they haven't done, what the copywriters haven't done is established that they're any good at the course. They've only established that you want to lose five pounds. Yeah. They haven't, they haven't established that the course is any good at all. They've just established that you have a need for it, maybe, that they can kick enough to make you spend $299, right? So I would argue, this is, this is sort of maybe the difference between my company and, and other companies, but, but I would argue that real true sort of the transaction uh, in, in a marketing piece is are we establishing credibility? Are we establishing that we are actually good at something? Because you can trick a lot of people for a year or two that that on social media and the way the web works, that, that your course is good for a year or two, but not 10, right? I mean, you can't be Deloitte selling a shitty weight loss course for, for 10 years, right? Like, like yeah, eventually, no, yeah. eventually even if you've made a couple of million bucks, which is what people do, they say, I've made so much money, I must be good at it, which is bullshit. It's got nothing to do with it. It's got more to do with price point and the, and the cost of selling Facebook ads than anything else. Uh, so, right, so the, the money doesn't mean anything, right? But, but, but is it going to be there in 10 years? Like, is it, is it actually going to be there in 10 years? Um, so, to me, so, to me, marketing has to do two things. It has to establish a relationship uh, or it has to establish credibility or both. Right, like th those are sort of the two drivers uh, of marketing. It has to it has to establish a relationship, or it has to establish credibility of the product. Uh, and so, and so that's the other templated thing that gets in the way is that somebody says, "I have to do my marketing this way," and it's like, why? Like, like why? Well, because I want to kick a pain point because I really want them to. And it's like, okay, but let's break that down. That means you're selling to the people who see this today and not actually establishing a relationship with them and not actually establishing the credibility of your service. And so can you sell, right? Frank Kern talks about this a lot. Can you sell to 3% of your market today? Yes, you can. Like 3% of your market is willing to buy today. And if you put out enough ads, you'll find them, right? And if you, you've got a price point that allows you to see enough, 3%, right? You, you can make some money. Like 3% of it is going to, but you really haven't done the thing you need to do in order to have a 10-year business, which is establish credibility 
um, and establish a relationship with somebody that that's that's going to last. That's the other that's the other templated thing that gets in the way. People saying, um, "I have to approach this problem this way," and it's like you don't. You have to approach the problem the way you assess information, and then we're going to go through that assessment of information. What's the best way for us to present this this way? This to solve to solve it the way we want to do it, not the way somebody else told us we were supposed to do it in an MBA or in a marketing class. Yeah, it's. Um, I think you just touched on some key points there. For, like for me, I, I won't. I like to think of myself as quite savvy with regards to buying. Like I really dig into the background of it, or um, like if I was going to join a mastermind, I'd listen to the before I joined the mastermind. I joined. I was listening to the podcast for two years. Right. Before I joined my podcasting course, I was listening to the podcast for two years. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So you, you, you're bang on the money for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As, as, and I, if you if you were the type of person that would, who would build the credibility and then started to create that relationship with me, 100%, if I needed what you were offering, I would buy. Right. Do you know what I mean? So exactly. It's, yeah, exactly. smack on them. Exactly. Right. I've never heard it framed that way. That's I, I'm not being rude. I'm writing as we go. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, yeah. No, it's. No, yeah. I, pre- well, I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate. I appreciate you saying that. I think if I and listen, I I don't know because because I didn't do like in depth studies with my, um, with 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 people who hired me. But I but I think that that's really. It, it, if I really was going to break down what was it that they saw in my marketing that, that made them say, I want this guy to help me with my marketing. I think it's simply that I was, uh, I was, I was presenting authentically my ideas and allowing the market to respond. Um, and I do think that I have thought about this more deeply than most people. So I'm, so I'm very comfortable presenting my ideas. I don't feel like that's manipulation, right? I feel like, and if somebody were to come and, and give me really good positive uh, criticism, like criticism that would help me, I would look at that as a net positive, right? It would like like that's that's more information for me to use. I like that that's not something that would scare me. That's something that I would encourage and, and would love. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think that's what people were were responding to was was I want to be in the market like that. That looks credible. Um, and that looks, and I think the difference between, and we've all probably done this. We've all bought the $295 weight loss course. That wasn't very good. Um, and I think part of what is, is making the internet difficult is that so many people are out there selling something not particularly good, uh, for a, a price point, which is sometimes extra i mean seven ten fifteen thousand dollars for a three-day course right and it's like like okay i've done i've done that three times now and it hasn't moved the needle for me like who are the people that i actually trust i think this is probably now going to be the next movement where it's like you've got to be credible first uh if you're credible first then they then they trust you and they know that you're not going to sell them a fifteen thousand dollar package doesn't do anything yeah yeah, this is something um, I've been playing with because as a a podcaster, some of the, sometimes the difficult part is understanding who your audience is. Mm-hmm. You know, demographics. I mean, you for the best will in the world, unless you've got like real top uh, stuff going on in the background, 
it's hard to deline- uh, to to understand you know uh, sex age and everything else um which therefore makes this when you present the message the the intent is to help anybody that's listening but the, right. what i'm trying what i was trying to structure is an, is a show that is for me that i needed 4 years ago that wasn't there yes just to shift you know, perspectives and you know, shift my perception my perception of what was possible because I was stuck. Yeah. So what I was going with is that it was once, once I realized I want to convey this message and be as open and honest and authentic as I, as I possibly can, yeah. then it's not so much a case of looking for clients It's a case of, I, I would still do this if no one ever reached out and asked me for help. Because it, it fills me, you know, I'm having conversations with people that are just breaking the way things work, the way they think, the way other people think. They're breaking down barriers and laying new ones. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's awesome. You know, and I get to be a part of that. I get to introduce those people to other people, yeah. which is amazing. So what I went down a rabbit hole for a while where I, I started shifting towards, I wanted to be a, like a coach. And I was thinking, I want to, you know, I want to coach people because I love coaching too. But then it sort of turned into a chase of trying to, you know, track down the clients and everything. And then when I went on that avenue, it felt so off for me because I was then chasing. Whereas now what I've decided is I'm 60 episodes in. I'm going to keep going until I get like 100 and on and on and on is, you know, I'm just going to keep racking these up. And for, for me, I think that that's the, uh, being consistent over time will give me the credibility that I'm not some fly by night. I'm yeah. not some charlatan that's just out the strips, you know, people's pockets out, like, you know, right. um, and hopefully then build relationships as I go, which I'm, I'm still learning how to do that. Um, other than doing maybe posts, you know, it's. I like the I like the face to face relationship building, yeah. But it's not always, it's not always possible, is it? You know, you can do the the conferences and the the meetups and everything else, but they're probably people you're likely to have on your show, not the people that need help mm-hmm. from the show. You know. Sure. So yeah, you you touch a good point there. So yeah, that's something yeah. I'm, I'm still trying to understand how. I mean. When when you say build relationships, the way that you do it is by you know your topic, you know what you're trying to communicate, and then you're just being as open as you can be, right. you know, and honest with your communication. There's no, like you said, there's no manipulation. You just you know your topic and you're just saying it. Is is a is it a way that you you're looking at these relationships and the way that you, you perceive them being structured? Or is it just purely through the communication you're delivering? Uh, I think it is. So on LinkedIn, which is where you and I met, yeah, it's it's twofold. Um, I think, I think the post, right? So so the the stuff that goes out publicly um, is is enough for a lot of people to say hey, that person seems really thoughtful and, and pretty good in their space. I'd like to either connect with that person or if I've already connected with that person, maybe 
send them a message and say, can we have a, can we have a chat about or get a cup of coffee? Uh, so that's, so, so I, but, but then, but then the face to face takes over. So I, I do think that the marketing has to lead to a phone call to a face to face. Um, I do think that if you were to do it, like I think about Frank Kern in this space or Kerwin Ray, uh, you know, people like that. Like, so people that I've been following for years, there are probably people in your world that you've been following for years where if they said, all right, I've got a $700 product that I think can really help you. If you've been following that person for years, but have never had a face-to-face conversation with them, but, but you've seen literally hours worth of materials, you've, you've, you're probably reasonably comfortable giving them $700. Uh, but, but, I, but I think that takes years. I, I think that takes years. I do, I do think the, the relationship can't be, enti- for most people, it can't be entirely in the post, in the, in the video, in the LinkedIn content. It, there, there also has to be a, a connection personal element to it. Do you mind if I ask you a couple questions about your, about, about what you just said there about, about your own marketing for a second? Is that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I guess my question is, I recognize that you're very good face to face, right? And, and you and I have had hours worth of phone calls, which I love, right? They're, They're some of the great gifts of my life to have those, to have those calls with you. Um, so I recognize that that's your wheelhouse. Do you think it is inauthentic to take? So let's say I bet I bet on your podcast, somebody mentions the word fear every time. I bet that's true. A form of it, yeah. So okay. So do you think it is inauthentic for you to write a post? that says, and I think anyone in your, in your, who's listening could probably do something similar, right? To write a post about um, a lot of men my age um, are going through fearful, have fearful habits, right? Or uh, if, if that's your niche, or if that's your niche just for today, right? Yeah. It'll just be today. Um, that's, that's the thing you're raw about today. That's the thing you want to write about today. Great. So, and then we grab eight, 10 second clips of you on these podcasts, talking about listening to fear, asking really good questions, really investigating, really being thoughtful about fear. I bet that most people who would see that post, like a really thoughtful language above really thoughtful responses, I think that's also building relationship, right? Because they're watching you think. And, and that, that, like, I always joke with my, uh, if, if you're in an undergraduate, right, classroom, which, which, I, which I end up in often, it's like, who, who, who's been in a relationship for longer than six months? You ask this, and half the hands go up. It's okay. Uh, and then and I say, okay, who's written a love letter in the last six months? Right? There's, and there's like, it's nobody, or it's like one girl. Right. It's like, it's like, what, right. And she's like the poet and she's, she's right. It's it's that person. Uh, So it's nobody or it's that, or it's that person. Um, We are petrified of writing down and owning our thoughts. We're petrified of it. Um, And that's in essence what, right. So if you think of it, right. So, so 
so you're in a relationship with you're a young person you're right you're in a relationship you're probably sleeping with that person you're going to thanksgiving dinner with them you're seeing them every friday saturday night you're probably spending 20 hours a week with them you, they own every aspect of relationship this is all of us right we own every aspect of relationship except the language we're petrified of our own thoughts even with the people we're most intimate with in the world right so, so then somebody says, hey, Joel, why don't you write down a post about helping men with fear, right? And it's like, that's like the last freaking thing I want to do in the world, right? <laughs> like, like I, want, I want no business with that. And so is every other person in your space having that exact reason. But when you actually do it, that's relationship building. Because, because now it's out there and they're like, damn, man, Joel just said it. Joel just, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, quite powerful too. Because you're right. It's uh, and you know that 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 sort of plays to my own perception of my own strength. Is mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm not always comfortable saying about my strengths because I prefer to see my weaknesses. So I know I've got something to grow on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, one of them I'd say is I, I'm willing to be the person that people point at and say, "Can you believe we just said that?" I'm, I'm willing to be the person that's willing to say I'm a 44 year old guy that's struggled with depression, you know, and, and struggles, uh, with, with guilt and all these like non-masculine, uh, you know, with a, you know, all the macho BS that goes with being a man. Yeah. I, I'm the antithesis of that. <laughs> I, I'm the opposite. I love that about you. <laughs> and I don't care. And people can judge me away because I don't care no more. I used to care and that's what led to my much unhappiness. However, I no longer do. Um but yeah, and yeah, I think I could be that person that could do that. That would I absolutely think you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And then and then the question becomes, of course, from a marketing perspective, what do you do once you're on the call? Right. So 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 now that people are interested, is it coaching is it speaking is it promoting the broadcast is it you know etc cetera, etc cetera. And, I, and I think those questions are 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 more probably internal to you but but there's no doubt to me that sort of authentic marketing is 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 going to drive a lot of conversions for authentic people like it's not going to drive conversions for really thoughtless people because all you're really doing is promoting that your thoughts aren't very deep uh, but but yeah. but that's not your problem right like that's not your problem no i think i think in a lot of ways it would work Absolutely. Dude, you got me, my mind's working all the time. Right. I, what I want to know now is, I mean, obviously you didn't just arrive at this point where you were uh, wizened and had all this background knowledge and, and you know, you've, you've, you've got here, but where, where, where have you got here from? Where, where were you say like, you know, uh, let's go back to like maybe primary times. What sort okay. of child was Brian? Yeah. Wow. Oh gosh. Um, uh, I, I was, this is an interesting question. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be authentic here as much as I can. So in, in this moment, this is how I would frame this. Um, my father was gay at a time when that was, he was born in 1933. Uh, so, so if he had been born 20, 30 years later, it would have been a much easier life for him. Mm. Um, 
and my mother was she's still with us but a very difficult person and uh and so my brother and i grew up here here is the fundamental mistake that my brother and i both made we both believed because my parents were academics that if you were the smartest person in the room you had power um, and I have really come to believe that that is not true at all. Uh, first of all, what's smart? That's right. That's an abstract term. It's underlied by concrete information. So what is what does that even mean? Um, second of all, I think wise people more than smart people, if we're going to differentiate those two terms, have a better go at it. I don't think my parents were probably wise and probably didn't teach us to be wise. Hmm. Um, and so and so, my parents probably taught us to be obviously smarter than everybody else which is not a good strategy uh, and then um, and then once you break down wisdom what are the things that actually build successful people and successful careers I, I always joke with my students you know um, the human being isn't necessarily we don't know like the human being really might not be the smartest animal on the planet but the human being is the most communicative but that, if you if you really want to break down, how did how did the human being go from essentially among the other animals to the one that has dominated the planet with all the with all the benefits and drawbacks of that? Um, it's because we trust each other in communication, uh, and that's really it. Like that's really, that's the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and and you know is is the language that we developed doing that. Uh, is is the language that we developed help, helping us to think more deeply and and make better decisions? Yes, right. That's the other side of being a good communicator. Um, but but are we wiser, smarter than other animals? I think I think the jury's probably out on that. But we but we definitely are the most we have the best language. And so bring that back to my childhood. Uh, I still don't think my mother understands that. Like to this day, my mother's in her seventies. I still don't think she understood. I don't think my father ever understood that. Um, and and that that move, understanding that, understanding that uh, Joel and I can do much more and better things together than if I was standing on the top of a mountain place somewhere, saying, "Doesn't everybody here think I'm super smart?" Um, even if you get a bunch of people to say you're super smart. You're still not contributing all that much. Uh, we've got to learn to cooperate with each other. Um, that's the very abstract answer to to your question. Um, I had to learn that, and that took 40 years to to learn that really well. Um, the process for learning that was writing books. So so my process for learning that, and I don't think that's the only process. Like, I think you can learn that in psychology. I think you can learn that in coaching. I think you can learn that in business. I think, I think you can learn that in a hundred different ways. My personal process for learning that piece of information was writing books. Uh, and because, because the, as soon as you understand that the human being will always be more ignorant than he has knowledge, then it becomes a question of how are we still framing information in order to be credible, in order to be actionable, in order to improve business, improve relationships, improve, improve marketing, improve whatever it is. Uh, 
how, how, are, how are we framing that information even though we're ignorant? Uh, and, and understanding that and understanding that, that we needed to frame information that way uh, was probably the most powerful thing that I needed to learn in order to do this well. So w w when you say that books, uh, writing books is a process, was that like you trying to convey your communication through your writing or, or was it the fact that writing a book is a, like quite a collaborative experience? Um, good question. I think what I mean is, so my book that I, that I wrote uh, took me, this is not an exaggeration, and this might be underplaying it, at least 16 years. Um, and I changed drastically over the course of those 16 years. Uh, was I petrified? Like, like, like is, that, is that a reasonable thing to say? Was, was there a fear of failure in there that also drove some of that? Yes, for sure. Uh, uh, so, but, but the actual process of writing the book, let's say the book ended up at, I think the version that I sent out to publishers was 284 pages. Um, the, I think it probably should have been about 350. That's my mistake. I would, I own, I own that. We cut it too much. Um, I own that. Um, still not an exaggeration. There are probably at least 10,000 pages that were written that were not in those 350 or 284. No way. Yeah, at least that, that, that might be under it. And so, I mean, I rewrote that book seven or eight times and did multiple chapters and everything else to do that. And so what was happening there, right? So what, what was driving that sort of never ending process? Um, and it was every time I finished the book, right? And this is, I always sort of envy someone like Jay McInerney who wrote his, his best, uh, I think his best, uh, maybe not, but, but you have a really good book of his called Bright Lights, Big City in a weekend. Uh, when I think theoretically for the, for the Paris review, uh, he wanted to submit something to the Paris review and he wrote it, he wrote it in a weekend. Um, What's great is that, is that a book like that can take a moment in time of somebody's life and it's not right or wrong or it's just, it's that weekend, it's that moment in time and, and picture it perfectly, just snapshot it. This is what it is to be this age, this time, this, and be really well observed on that thing. And I think most books probably are that. But the way I wrote the book, it took me so darn long to do drafts of the thing that I would change so much over the course of drafting it that by the time I was done it, I would say, God, this doesn't even represent what I think about these people anymore because this draft started two years ago and now, and now I got to go back and change the beginning again and make it look like the end. And then the beginning, then the beginning changed enough that the end stopped looking that process, like constantly looking at, um, constantly looking at why human beings do what they do, which is what that book was. So the book was here and you can see this actually, this is, I don't know if you can see this. This is, uh, this is my coffee mug. This is, uh, Amadeo Modu. I, 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 this is my lip lip thing here has, has <laughs> lip it all off. But, um, so my book was about, uh, Amadeo Modugliani, the, uh, Italian artist. 
and written from the perspective of his girlfriend who killed herself the day after he died um, while she was nine months pregnant. And yeah, and so I heard that and had that reaction and thought I got to write a book about, a book about this. And um, that, who I was assessing that information changed seven or eight times over the course of writing that book, right? It was, I didn't, I, so, so the part that I, I, I think I, I started out with, oh, they loved uh, art and they loved purity and they loved truth and they loved, um, and then I would, at, at, even at the end of the first draft of that, when I was maybe 28 years old, I was probably saying, I don't even know what these words mean. Like this is, this is very fake. This is, this is a very fake version of this thing. I need a better version of this thing. And, and so I stretched that story like elastic seven or eight times um, and ended up with a much more nuanced uh, version of the story. And I think that process essentially got me from looking at things a certain way to looking at things much more nuanced and in-depth and where and where and how do we actually get information and how do we process them, which is in essence what I'm teaching now. So you would have had to have researched her then. So, so, so you learn from another's life story and then a, indirect it, unconsciously applied it to your own to give you new perspectives. I think that's fair. I think that's, I think that's a fair assessment of what happened. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think that's, and I think we could all do that with essentially everything that I always, I always tell my students that, it doesn't matter to me. They all say, well, what do you want us to write about? And it's like, well, it doesn't matter to me if you, I mean, you want to write about politics, write about politics. You want to write about how to write an omelet, how to make an omelet. And <laughs> like, it doesn't matter to me um, what the stimulus for thinking is, right? What, what matters to me is how well observed we are on the thinking um, and, how, and, how, and how nuanced and how, and how sort of thoughtful the responses are. Um, and so... I did it with one book, right? But but certainly take other authors, take uh, Ian McEwen, right? Ian McEwen put out a book uh, at least at least once every two years. You can see his his thinking change, the way he processes information. Or anybody who's been publishing for twenty years, you can see their process of information changing uh, over over the over, over that period of time. Uh, but I do think of story and and human story as a stimulus for a stimulus for thought not it, like so so data to me data does not have inherent value and so we can call you know Modigliani in this case uh, data but th but the data doesn't have inherent value the value of the story was how i was processing that data and that processing of data was changing year by year throughout that process yeah, no, I can I can completely get that. I mean, I've never ever done anything like you've done, but I like writing, and I haven't done it for ages. I, I like writing blogs, so I'll just do odd random blogs. But I can often, as I'm writing, and it's it's interesting. I was going to ask you where where do you think the stimulus of the thinking comes from? I mean, do you have a a routine or something you start to trigger? you're thinking off or is it just like, do you believe in like muses and being touched? Do you know what I mean? Creatively or what, what's your, what's your take on it? Um, I have a very non-creative take on it, to be honest with you. Um, 
I, and, and I think that's probably why I've ended up teaching in businesses because it's not that I haven't taught uh, more creatively in colleges as well. I have, but, but, but I think my, my wheelhouse is being very sort of normal about it. Um, the, I remember this, I'll tell you the story. I was, I grew up Catholic. Um, I remember being 15 years old, fat kid, unpopular, angry, um, and going down to the church bathroom. I don't know why, but that's what it was. Uh, going down to the church bathroom, I was 15 and I was so frustrated. I didn't like my mother. My father was distant. I like my brother and I never got along. We never, and everybody in that building struck me as really fake and trying to be something that they weren't really being. And, and just like, and so, and, and literally saying, what do I know to be true? Like this was a question that I asked myself when I was 15 and I am only going to act on information that I know to be true from here on in. I was about 15 and I was in a church bathroom. Um, it was surprising how little we actually know to be true. <laughs> like, like, I, like, like we, we concoct a lot of what other people tell us are, is true, right? Particularly at that age. But but what do we actually at that age or really any other age know to be true are things that are very limited, almost to the point of being nothing. Right. So, so, so if you, if you really sort of break this down, um, the Buddhists call it dependent origination, right? The, the idea that God has never dropped a uh, fully souped out BMW in the middle of Times Square, New York, right? That for that thing to get there, uh, it needed labor and, and aluminum and metal and rubber and a whole bunch of other things came together to make that happen. Like, like things don't exist as themselves. They come from other places. Belief systems don't exist as themselves. They come from other places. And the minute you start to break down, well, what are the things that I actually know to be true? Like, what are the things that I know to be true that live inside my experience? Um, it was, it was almost, it was almost nothing, uh, which was, uh, it sounds frightening, but it was entirely freeing to do that because it was like, okay, great. Then I'm not, then I'm not beholden to any of this. Right. And now, now I'm just going to go through life and try to make better assessments of the data that I come in contact with. And I think this is just the grown up version of that. I think it's, it's sort of fundamentally the same thing. What what do you think would have been the trigger for that? I mean, because that is a real awakening thought to have at that age. Yeah. So what? I mean, I know you said you had a lot going on with the family, but what what was the the lead up to that thought? What, I mean, can you talk us through it. Um, well, maybe uh, I think that the very short version, and I never I never gave him enough credit for this when he was alive. Uh, my father was brilliant. Uh, he was a college president. Um, and he was a philosopher. He was a, he, he taught philosophy. And so um, he used his brain as a defense mechanism, but it was in there, right? Like it was the, the, the sort of deep thought, deep assessment of things was in there. He was not, he used it as a defense mechanism, but when he taught and when he was giving conferences and when he was giving talks, uh, he was very, very thoughtful. And, and so that, I think I, I was, I was in a, I was in a place where what do you actually know to be true 
that was probably not the first time that I had heard that. Okay. I, I didn't have that sort of luxury. That that must have been quite conflicting for you, where you've got you can see uh, the different environments uh, with your you, with maybe the way your father engages with your mother and, and your brother and yourself, and then the way he engages when he delivers outside yeah. of that environment. So it was almost like the environment dictated his his, his being the way he was in that environment. Yeah. That must yeah. be very difficult for you to, to process at a younger age. Um, well, what it, what it did was, it was actually harder to process, I think, when we got older, and particularly when he died. Um, because, you know, he was the president of a college, and, and he, would, he published all of these books and, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, and so people in the community knew who he was and et cetera. And so in, in many cases, I think that we felt, very grateful and, and honored and blessed to, to be a part of his family. Uh, and, and so that was wonderful uh, in that way, but only really, you know, he died poorly, meaning, meaning the relationship with, with, uh, with my brother and I were, was not fabulous at, at, at his death. And um he was very removed from family and removed from his own emotions and things at, at death, at least as far as I could tell, maybe other people would see it differently. Um, and so only really then I think were we putting together that um, despite all of his successes and being brilliant and the books and everything else and, and, and that we still were blessed to be his, uh, his family, there was, there was also this side of him that was very distant. Um, and I think, I think I, I, if, if I think I'm probably still processing that, I think it's probably mostly processed now. He's been gone about 15 years. Um, but, but maybe only in the last five years has that become more comfortable for me. I think I was very angry about that for the, say the first 10 years after he was, after he died. Yeah. So have you, have you taken anything on from the fact that he may have been distance and maybe as you said, non-emotional. Is there anything that you've taken? Because I know with my own father, with like his parenting style was very old school. Yeah. Just say as I do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, he didn't mess about with my father. Uh, I still don't. And he's in his 70s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, is, is there anything you've taken from the way that your father was that you sort of brought into your life and thought, well, I'm going to be, you know, I'm not going to do that. If you, Absolutely. If you, Absolutely. Um, absolutely. My, my wife and I have a much, you know, this is, uh, I don't know if people who are, who are listening would, would, would recognize this, but uh, I called my brother. This is dead. This is dead serious. I called my brother uh, the night before I proposed to my wife and said, I want you to sort of talk me out of it. If you think that, if you think that I'm not seeing this clearly, and so I said, these are what I see to be um, the issues in mom and dad's relationship. And I, and I listed them. I said, I think Sarah and I have these issues, but not these issues. <laughs> yeah. so, and so, so I'm reasonably certain that the issues that they had in their relationship, their inability to talk, their inability, like those issues aren't, are, there are probably a host of things that I'm not seeing right now, but but can you 
sort of, if you think I'm blind and that I'm like walking into the same relationship that he did, can you, can you just say to me, Brian, you're blind and you're walking into the same relationship? And my brother said, no, I think you're seeing this very clearly. <laughs> like, there probably are a host of things that you're not seeing, but, but it's not these things. Uh, and so I, I definitely think that there's, there's a, uh, parents, parents have that role for us uh, to be positive and, and unfortunately sometimes negative uh, role models and, and say, okay, well, that's something I'm going to do differently. Um, I, I agree with you. I think, I think that happens. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I thought that I was going to try and do something different with my son when he was first born, where I wasn't going to be, I don't want to say oppressive because he wasn't oppressive, but he was, he was very firm and there was no doubt who ruled it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've sort of taken on the firm bit where I didn't want to be the, like he could be, cause he'd be trying to explain himself and he'd get frustrated cause maybe I wasn't taking it in the correct way. And then I don't know, <laughs> there's a lot of my friends can resonate with this, whether the father's trying to do maths and then and explain it to the, to the child and the child doesn't explain it. And the next thing like, ah, you're bang, he's banging a table, you know, about which point I've gone switch off. I've gone, you know, I've left the building. Just my shell is there. Uh, the rest of me is just completely turned off. So I, I tried not. I tried to be aware of when I was bringing that yeah. into our family. Um, but then I look back on it now when he's saying my boy is fourteen, um, and I think I've probably done more harm than good by trying to be not like my father and be like him. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, you know, it's retro. Retrospection is a beautiful thing, right? Um, well, would you say that not being like your father was a thoughtful choice or a reactive choice? Thoughtful choice. Okay. Um, because I can I could acutely remember how I felt in those situations mm-hmm. where his communication skills could have been enhanced. Right. You know, and that's all it come down to was right. the way you know the, his communication. Um, but it, it leaves it can leave it can leave mar- marks on your on your on your on your mind. You know. Yeah. I mean, I had well, I had a I had a situation in work the other day, like, and and the boss was trying to explain something, and I was bricking it going into this conversation with him because it was just me and him, yeah. and uh, he, he's very factual. He's very uh, logical with his thinking, you know, he's an Excel, he lo- loves Excel. So w- when he wants answers, he wants answers. And we sat down and I, and I said, I could feel myself shutting down. And I said, I got to tell you, I said, I'm absolutely popping myself by you. And he went, Oh no, he said, no, I'm trying to help you. He said, you know, this is me. See how much time you're spending doing this thing. And I want to improve how quickly you can do it to help you. He said, and as soon as he said that, my mind, I, I grabbed onto the bit of information I wanted, which was help you. Yes. Threw the rest away. And I thought, right, okay, I'm all in. And I could focus. And I knew where all the files were because I, I was flustered because I didn't know where the files were. But it's funny yeah. what we look for in that communication, you know? You just, yes. It's, uh, have, you ever, have you ever experienced anything like that? Um every day <laughs> absolutely absolutely I, I i absolutely think that framing information 
right? For, for an audience. So in this case, you or the audience, um, why does the meeting happen, right? So framing information for the audience. I always, I always joke. I, it's not even a joke. I just believe, I think it's the most important skill in the world. I really do because, because the information itself is going to, is going to, if you just give people information, it's going to, it's going to be filtered through them and their histories and their concerns and their, right. If you just give information, but if you frame the information and say, uh, Joel, you're probably freaking out, but I want to be clear that I'm just doing this to help you. And I see that you're wasting a bunch of time and I don't want you to waste that time. I imagine that's frustrating you. Can I show you something for five minutes? You go, Oh, thanks for that frame. Appreciate that. <laughs> right. And now, and now, and now I'm here. But, but if you just say, can you come to my office? I want to show you something. I'm scared to death. Right. And so, so I, I, I'm absolutely with you. Framing information is the most important skill in the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I like the way you framed that. <laughs> I would have come in the office and been fine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. right. uh, yeah, brilliant stuff. Okay, well, Brian, I want to be respectful of your time. You're with an hour and a half in. How are we doing? Uh, we're good. I unfortunately have a call in one minute. Uh, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> let's 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 wrap let's wrap him up. That happens. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, okay. So looking into the future. What would be yeah. the craziest and most exciting thing for you to be experiencing? Um, well, you and I have spoken about this, and this is an awesome thing to last to to, to leave on. Um, my goal, right? My goal is uh, I want a uh, philanthropic business, right? And that business uh, is probably funded largely from hopefully a, a successful non-philanthropic business, um, uh, which is my business. Um, and that business's job is to help uh, writers and students and entrepreneurs and uh, everybody else with their thinking and writing and presenting of information and communication. Um, my, because my wife is undoubtedly going to be involved in that, it will also have something to do with helping people with their movement because that's her background. Um, and because we're both involved in that, I think that probably has something to do with helping people with their finances as well in order to ensure that all of that uh, continues to happen for the people that we, uh, but that is absolutely something I want. I want a, I want a little, I want a little retreat center on the beach and really thoughtful people that we get to help and, uh, and add value to and not for profit and, uh, help them sort of go out into the world and add value and, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and onward and onward and onward. That's where I want to be 10 years from now. That sounds pretty awesome to me. Yeah, come speak. <laughs> <laughs> Willingly. Willingly. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time this evening. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Um, I would like, just like to thank you before you go for, uh, for, for being on point with your mission. And uh, I mean, your, your mission says on your, on your LinkedIn profile to uh, mission is for teams to be the best to do their best work every time i think this is translatable across all of life uh with the stuff you're talking about now and uh just keep putting that message out there because this is a ton of people that need it um and you've got a lovely vibe you're a beautiful personality and thank you so much for coming on thank you so much for having me joel it's been a, been a gift as always let's uh let's let's, let's stay in touch and uh i'll, I'll touch back later on and maybe if you're interested you could come back on again because i'd love anytime. to do go further with you anytime
Anything? Fantastic. Okay. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you so much. So thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Joel Ingram, and I am a certified NLP coach. I help passionate, resourceful, and professional people feel stuck and unfulfilled with aspects of life to rewrite their narrative and chronicle a new, engaging, and captivating future. Please subscribe if you found benefit.